0: Welcome to this episode of our podcast with me Lyndon kemkaren and my guest dr connor walsh now today we're talking about the hot topic of the moment which is of course climate change and there's probably no better guest than dr connor walsh now connor is an environmental scientist here at the natural resources institute which is part of the university of greenwich and i think i'm right in saying that what he doesn't know about climate change probably isn't worth knowing. So welcome, Connor to this podcast. I hope I've made you blush just a little bit with that uh, glowing introduction.
1: Uh, Good morning, Lyndon, and thank you very much for the invitation to speak with you. I am suitably blushed, um, which is very nice considering it's a bit grey and dull today. So, you know. You've
0: you've generated your own brand of of global warming by blushing, hopefully. (laughs)
1: yeah,
0: Exactly. I've got a a, a dog and a cat
1: at my feet that I think are just happy for a any additional uh, warmth, despite on, on the floor heating, some some animals just uh, are never happy. <laughs> I was... know what
0: you mean. Now, Connor, you are not just talking about climate change; you are actively doing something about it in the form of you have just uh, started teaching on a brand new uh, bachelor's program. That you're leading right now. Can you tell me a bit about this, this BSC um, in climate change? So
1: my just just very briefly, my background in this area is that I worked for eight years in a climate change research institute. So working directly with people whose main academic focus is on the scale and urgency of this problem solidified my view on on how it is that the preeminent challenge of our times. So therefore when the opportunity came to Uh, offer a BSc programme at the University of Greenwich, I fully supported this. I suppose in a a, a nutshell, the, the rationale is threefold. First of all, things are changing very quickly. The students entering higher education now or next year, the time at which they enter the workforce will be even more pivotal in relation to how we, as a society, as a global community, have to address this problem. Secondly, there is an awful lot of information available about climate change, which is fantastic. Some of it is perhaps not as scientifically robust as we'd like, or some of it is perhaps not interpreted correctly, or or perhaps some of it has a um, it's presented through the lens of a uh, political forum. So the narratives around climate change are intertwined with. Um, issues of politics in a way that many other scientific um, disciplines or perspectives are not. So I think it's very important to um, empower individuals. Students can act as ambassadors, shall we say, of, for the best available information that we can gather.
0: And I, I Sorry to interrupt, Connor, but I, heard, I came across an interesting um, phrase the other day of climate literacy. Um, would, would you say you're introducing climate literacy to the next generation by teaching this course.
1: That's an excellent point. That's exactly what we're aiming for because there's an awful lot of phrases that are used sometimes interchangeably and they are actually quite important because they're also used in things like political speeches, in documents, in um, newspaper headlines and they're not always used correctly or explained. So concepts like low emissions, zero right. emissions, net zero, negative emissions. What does a 1.5 degrees actually mean? Very often these words are can be used rather glibly and so these things actually have a have a defined scientific meaning. And so understanding mm. what they actually mean in in practice is very important.
0: It is really important, isn't it? Because it keeps us uh, focused on what actually needs to, to change instead of talking about it in very general terms, which I think up until probably now with COP26, just drawing to its final conclusion, um, we might have all been guilty of a little bit. So imagine, Connor, that I'm someone who's never heard of the word climate change before, how would you as a climate change expert, how would you sum up how we got to the point where we are now at?
1: Well, very simply, um, over the past century, uh, really starting more significantly in the 1950s but since since the advent of the industrial era, we've been taking stocks of carbon materials from the lithosphere, from the ground in the form of fossil fuels. We have been composting this for resources like energy and heat and making great tremendous use of them and emitting this material out into the atmosphere. And the amount of carbon dioxide, but other greenhouse gases, but we're just going to focus on carbon dioxide at the moment, has accumulated at a rate that exceeds the natural capacity of the other parts of the carbon cycle, the sinks, to remove it. So we have important sinks like the uh, ocean sinks, like the terrestrial Biosphere sink and they're great. Carbon can be locked up in trees for a a certain period, it it can be absorbed into the ocean. But those are the capacity of, of those sinks are limited. So, over the past century, the concentration of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere has slowly built up. And because this is a greenhouse gas, this means that this affects the balance between incoming radiation and outgoing radiation as we've accumulated greenhouse gases in the atmosphere it means that the radiation of heat back up from the earth's surface is now a lot more visible to the atmosphere it interacts with it more and this outgoing radiation is trapped and slowly the the energy balance between energy entering the earth system and energy leaving it is tipped more so to towards the accumulation or the retention of energy due to the accumulation of greenhouse gases
0: so we've we've created some sort of vicious sort of cycle
1: well that's i mean you you you've pretty much hit the nail on the head what we're very worried about is the potential for feedback or um triggering of tipping points so we're already living under climate change climate change is not something that is going to happen in the future if we don't do X, Y, Z. Climate change is a reality at the moment. And what we're quite worried about is the uh, potential for increasing temperatures to trigger other processes which might then further release greenhouse gases that further um, increase temperature. And these additional processes will be very difficult, if not impossible, to try to switch off. So, for example, the towing of... Uh, permafrost soils that releases a significant amount of greenhouse gases into the atmosphere might, will further heating, further uh, in, induce uh, uh, global warming, which will then activate potentially other uh, tipping points. Um, so we there is still a huge amount of uncertainty associated with this.
0: You just mentioned tipping points there. So what are the tipping points that we uh... What's well, you that scientists like you have been looking out for and what have you noticed um occurring already if that makes sense
1: potentially so um, just to name a few so i mentioned the permafrost the thawing of the permafrost um soils in let's say northern russia around siberia you might have seen the headlines that there have been um heat waves um in that part of the world of late um, and there's risk there's, there's worry that this might release large quantities of methane in soils that are that were uh, frozen effectively kind of biologically inactive and as they thaw you they um, this organic material um, uh, becomes available to anaerobic bacteria that then produce methane which is a a very uh, potent greenhouse gas there's research to suggest this um, if you take into account the losses of carbon due to the deforestation prompted by um, agricultural expansion. That's the Amazonian primary forests are now, region is now a, a, a carbon source as opposed to a sink. There's also worry about um, what we call the calactites. These are kind of um, frozen methane emissions at the bottoms of lakes, um, becoming more volatile, escaping the atmosphere as temperature increases. a whole point of tipping points um, is that one might activate the other, might activate the other, might activate the other. So one degree could that activate two degrees, could activate three, etc. And this process becomes something that we cannot um, uh, mitigate, we, 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 we
0: cannot really stop. They're sort of a lot of wake up calls, are they? Kind of little alarm, alarm clocks going off. Can I just can I just play devil's advocate for one minute and just put put to you a theory that I've read other people uh, talking about? And um, the, the climate has always uh, been in a state of flux. It's, we've never had in the history of this whole planet. We've never had a climate that is static and unchanging. And you think of the ice age, and you think of you know the dinosaurs. You know you go right back for millions and millions of years. Things are always changing. So why? Or should we be worried that the, the climate is still continuing to change? What what has put people like you on high alert that this is somehow a bad thing that is now happening and not just a natural process?
1: Well, that's a very good question. And of course, you're correct. The you know, environment around us, we, we notice changes in seasons. So uh, the natural environment is one of constant change. However, if we look out over the long, long term in terms of millions of years, let's say, going back to the the Triassic period, the Cretaceous, you had temperatures much higher than currently, uh, and you had um, significant changes in sea level, etc. So very, very different. And this has caused some people to uh, adopt a, let's say, contrarian view that, well, what we're seeing now is, is, is that these changes are much smaller compared to the rate of change we've seen in the past, so we shouldn't be worried. However, one thing that people often forget yeah. is it's not just the actual um, extent of a temp- change in temperature relative to today. It's the time in which that temp- the time scale in which that temperature changed.
0: Do you mean do you mean things are happening more quickly than they have done in the past?
1: Yeah, exactly. So if we look in the past around, let's say, the Triassic, the Cretaceous, etc., the temperature temperature is much higher than now. But the change happened over hundreds of thousands, if not millions of years. So, it gave time for natural systems to adapt. What we're seeing now is the change is happening at a much faster rate than natural systems can adapt to. So, even though the absolute value of the change, you know, let's say one degree or two degrees above pre industrial levels, is small compared to the change between the Triassic and the Cambrian, but that was, you know, a significant amount of time, we're seeing um, changes happening in the scale of less than human lifetimes, which right. is quite worrying, quite terrifying. Yeah, so
0: it, it's the speed, and we, and you're saying that human beings simply won't be able to keep up. Well, with the, with the speed well, of the, the changes of the natural environment, what well,
1: the natural environment that we on which we depend won't be able to keep up.
0: Right. Let's go back to um, Paris, 2015. Sure. Um, how does what happened in that? Climate Change Summit frame what we've seen happening in in COP twenty six. You know how how would you say the public mood has changed in the last six years?
1: The Paris Agreement reaffirmed the global community's commitment to limit the global average temperature increase to well below two degrees above pre industrial levels, um, but ideally aiming for one point five degrees. So that 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 is the um mm-hmm. that is a very ambitious um, target. It is, a, it is a arguably an audacious and optimistic one, but effectively it was based on this precautionary principle that two degrees is you know the limits prior to that was the limit between dangerous and climate change but it became evident that even two is quite disastrous for many uh, for for many regions around the world. So just to remind your listeners, signatories to the Paris agreements agreed, OK, we will um, make every effort to limit global um, average temperature increases by 2100. So what does that mean for uh, COP that we're seeing? One of the really important things is that, is that one of the um, regulatory mechanisms that was um, agreed in conjunction with this as part of the Paris Agreement was that Um, individual countries would make nationally declared commitments, or what we call NDCs, to um, make a contribution to the overall global effort to uh, limit um, the global average temperature increase. Now, what that means is we can look collectively at all the pledges made by different countries um, and see if we'd stack it all up, what impact will that have on the cumulative emissions that we... Um, no determines the temperature increase. If all the signatories um, meet their pledges, we're still on track for a world of between two and three degrees.
0: And it's going, and, that, and that's going to happen quite quickly, isn't it? For indigenous communities and those people who live on the atolls, for example,
1: there, there are many areas like the uh, low-lying Pacific islands for whom, um, even if let's say uh, a two-degree scenario is met and their islands are not completely inundated the act of increased uh, wave action is sufficient to make many parts uninhabitable, even if they are technically not flooded. So even under uh, 1.5 degrees, there's going to be many regions that are likely, in all practical terms, uninhabitable. It's very easy to um, come across as being overly dramatic, but for many regions, um, this really is existential. In, in the very literal sense
0: and can i ask when you're when you're standing up and 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 teaching uh, this this new program in climate change are you do you find yourself preaching the, to the converted are all your students um completely on board or do you get people who who take this this course because they want to be convinced that it's a real problem you know do you ever get any kind of climate skeptics or climate deniers um, taking your oh, course
1: um no both, but however i would say yeah. <laughs> again um I I think that there is a perhaps shades of scepticism, or scepticism is the wrong word. I I would say there is, um, there is a graduation of awareness. So, um, previous colleagues of mine have uh, a phrase that often that say the scientific impartial tone that we adopt is actually doing a disservice, and and we really need to be a lot more. Clear and explicit about the likely, specific, um, disastrous uh, implications for climate change on human well being.
0: Oh, I see. So you've been criticized for being too cool and and rational and scientific about it in the past. And people people are saying you need to be well, that that is one view. So,
1: so in in response to your question, I would say it's not, I, I have. In fairness, I, I really have met very few outright climate skeptics, but I think many of us really don't necessarily speak as explicitly as we should or could about the mm. actual likely impending scale of the impact, direct impacts on human lives and well-being and livelihoods.
0: Interesting. So, what what, what is your view, Connor, on on climate skeptics or downright? climate deniers. Do you think they should get airtime on the media or, you know, some column inches in, in print put across their side of the argument? Or do you think they shouldn't get any airtime? What, what do you personally feel about that?
1: From a pure scientific point of view, I would say that there, uh, I, I think that we are very often conflating false equivalences in this, a one position is presented, where it draws its legitimacy from a sense of uh, or this from a view of scientific uh, val- validity and verification is often presented against a um, counterpoint whose position draws its validity and legitimacy from a sense of you know free speech and everyone should be entitled to have their own view both both of those are correct i would say this from the point of view of a if you are proposing this debate from a purely scientific yeah. perspective, then the, the climate denier would have, our denialism position would have to present a robust you know, validator's scientific position to be held.
0: And have you ever come across anyone who's been able to do that um, to, to a high enough standard well, uh, for your liking? No, the,
1: the issue is there, there are always um, a small number of individuals who genuinely um, will... Ha- have reasons for adopting a contrarian view and some of these are legitimate scientists but science it happens often um the argument or this the analogy I've, I've often used is you know, turning an oil tanker one single study doesn't necessarily prove conclusive it takes a weight of evidence and whilst there are examples of individual scientists who uh, uh, do adopt a uh, opposing view they are fewer far between the whole body as a whole, the vast body of uh, climate scientists are conclusively um, convinced that the scale and urgency of the problem that is being reported is valid. So I mm-hmm. guess to answer your question is I would say it depends on the purpose of the discussion. If the discussion is based around beliefs and values and personal uh, views, then sure, it, 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 all, all views are welcome and should be contested. But if the purpose of the debate is to debate science, then it needs to be, you know, based on on that basis. So
0: it needs to be backed up with hard scientific facts rather than just.
1: Well, sure. So so the the question as to whether whether deniers should be given. Um, space, I would say, sure, it would depend on the purpose of that debate.
0: Yes, if yeah, no, I un- I understand where you're coming from on that. So another thing I wanted to ask you about, obviously the push um, now, mm-hmm. certainly in the UK, is for petrol and diesel cars to uh, not be sold anymore sure. after a certain date, which is quite mm-hmm. uh, not that far in the future, and for electric cars to be fully embraced across the country, but. Surely, and this is one of my uh, questions about the whole climate change issue. Surely, for everything we change, like electric cars, we create another environmental downside. There's not, there's never an easy answer, is there, to to helping solve this problem?
1: There's a big trade-off to be had within many different sectors as they try to decarbonize. The issue on electric cars is is, is very timely. We see. Increasing uh, demand for the uh, rare earth minerals that are part of, for example, battery construction, and, and there yeah, is yeah, and
0: that that can, concerns me because obviously okay. we're you know we're mining these materials out of the earth. Sure. They're not an infinite source either. Oh, are of course they?
1: not. No, no, there are, certainly are not. The uh, uh, and we're becoming increasingly aware that the actual conditions of these mines and the remuneration of the workers is, is quite um, exactly.
0: There's um, a lot, a lot, of, a lot of human rights issues, aren't there? Consum- Surrounding the whole mining of the, the minerals sure. to form the batteries for electric cars. So, where do we go with that? You know, that, well, that doesn't seem like an ideal solution no, either. No,
1: it, it, it doesn't. But I mean, uh, one of the arguments is the need to move away from one issue advocacy so that in proponents and supporters of electric vehicles say, yes, we, we want to switch to electric vehicles because of the, the, the climate benefits, but also we also want to make sure that we're not supporting a exploitative industry and we would be willing to pay x percent more for you know ethical lithium or, or something like that so one of the um views within the social sciences um arm of of environmental sciences is the this need to have a holistic view on the social economic as well as the environmental aspects of all of our choices
0: yes it needs a multifaceted approach doesn't it really
1: significantly and and very often you know an average consumer we're all, we're all profoundly busy um it's it's very easy to be overwhelmed uh and, and it's very easy um to lose sight of, of what you as an individual can or should do
0: and i think do you think it's also a problem i mean living here in the uk quite comfortably in northern europe you know we we have a we have odd weather, but we've always had odd weather. But, you know, generally we're not going to be frozen. We're not going to be baked alive. Um, why do we need to worry about climate change? I can understand people living in an atoll in the, in the Pacific with the water, the sea levels rising year on year, can, can see very dramatically the effect climate change is having. But here in the UK, you know, how hard is it to, to make people have these concerns about their own future?
1: I mean, this is a very good point because now that we recognise the the impacts that we are going to have to contend with are not just uh, the preserve of the global south. We see in um, Northern Europe, we see f- um, storms uh, surges more commonly than before. We see flooding in areas that um, were that was much rarer in the past. We see you know one in century events happening every couple of decades. Um, we see. Forest fires in parts of the US, we see concentrated heat waves and, and, and droughts um, in places like Australia where you know, water supplies are significantly under stress. The impacts of climate change are becoming a lot more visible. And mm. um, the, the terrifying thing is, is that this is something that we have to effectively learn to live with uh, whilst we're trying to make sure they don't get any worse. And that's what climate adaptation is all about. We've oh,
0: probably... that brings me on to my next question. Actually, so a phrase that I've heard you use in the past is "the less we mitigate, the more we adapt." Explain exactly. what that phrase actually means. So,
1: that's well. Thank you for bringing that up. So, <laughs> put simply, mitigation is the reduction in emissions that would accumulate in the atmosphere and uh, result in warming. So, in the same way, you have a budget in your bank account, and you can spend it all, and you you're you're completely broke. Or you can spend a little bit every week and you can still you know, keep some money to, to use in the future. So reducing emissions is mitigation. But the extent to which we do mitigate and the extent to which we, uh, let's say, fail to meet uh, targets like those enshrined in the Paris Agreement will determine the global average um, temperature increase that we will have to contend with which will then affect or will then precipitate the uh, local uh, regional impacts that we're going to have to deal with. All these things are effectively what adaptation is about, trying to live under these changed conditions. And one point I would really like to make here is this. I would like to remind our listeners again, when you see an average, don't take that overly literally. So a global average, uh, let's say, global average temperature increase by 2100 is very a, a very useful indicator. But what an individual region might experience on the course of a year well, might well be very different.
0: And coming back to COP26, would, would you say, uh, obviously, as we're speaking now, the, the whole thing is is drawing to to a close and the final agreement has just been published. Do you think it's been um, an opportunity well used or has it been a wasted opportunity? And a second part to this question, what what would you have done if you were in charge of the whole COP26 uh, summit with the benefit of hindsight?
1: It's, It's very difficult to unilaterally pronounce something successful or not. From us from what I've seen the scale mm. the, the commitments made or the increase in the commitments made are, are certainly a additional step in the right direction, but from what I can understand do fall short of what is likely to be required to meet a one point five degree target presently so but my view of, of what i'm what I've read thus far is that the most let's say the the Part of the ambitions for those of us to take it extremely seriously have not been necessarily met. As to what I would do differently, well, it, it's again, this is it effectively requires governments to um, make significant uh, commitments to reduce consumption, to reduce growth, to hugely invest in technology. It's, it's up to individual governments to do what they are to, to, to effectively... Grasp the nettle and propose Mm. very audacious.
0: Has it been has it been audacious enough for your liking?
1: Nothing. No, I don't think so. But the reality is, we need vast, vast reductions in consumption in our quality of life, and unless individual, uh, unless voting populations propose that, along with acceptance, or or. Preference for things like electric vehicles. It's we're only going to get to where we're going when demand and supply both transition. So it's not just a case of we want electric cars. We want decarbonized electricity. We have to consume significantly less material.
0: Yeah, let's talk about that for just a minute. What so we're talking about here about personal responsibility, aren't we? Everybody doing something to change the way we live. So what does the phrase "adapting our value set" mean to you? Is it simply Less travel, less choice, owning less stuff—is that what it's all about? Is that what we all need to do as individuals?
1: Yes, 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 and, significant, and, and significantly. I mean, it's very difficult to um, keep this in your mind. We were in such a, in part, we're so, such a busy world. But I mean, I'm lifting up my, I'm lift, I'm lifting up my laptop now. I'm looking underneath. Can you guess where it is made? Then,
0: um, I'm going to guess somewhere like China, but I don't know.
1: Bingo. Okay, so. Um, if we look at emissions, um, total emissions, if we, let say, put a, a ring around a country like the US and a country like China, the total emissions of China are higher than the total emissions of the US. But the per capita emissions of China are much lower. So we, as consumers, we are effectively prompting other regions to emit uh, CO2 on our behalf because we consume the material that they produce. We
0: want to we want to buy the stuff exactly. that they churn out. So we right? are
1: we are yeah. part individual responsibility is very important, but it's also a lot more complex. We hugely do need to reduce what we consume, but we also need to change how we produce it. So we need to both say yes, we we, we want less stuff, but also the stuff that we do ultimately have to need needs to be produced in a different way.
0: Just talking about your laptop, you know, we we're, we're sort of sucked into this the way that we live now, you know, we, we need a uh, laptop stops working, so we chuck it and we get a new one. Our phones have sort of a built-in obsolescence to them um, and the new model comes out and you buy the new model and you might need a new a new uh, jack to go in where the headphone thing used to fit. It doesn't fit anymore, so you need to buy a new little piece of cable with a plastic thing attached. You know, I I, I, I struggle sometimes to think, how can we get out of this? If you If you live in the modern world, how on earth can you get out of this dreadful sort of cycle that we're in of just buying more stuff just to just to live
1: just to do our jobs it's it's very one of the really one of the real main barriers to my to my mind as to what makes climate change so difficult to try to respond to is that it requires nearly everyone to act again this this is this is the 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 whole inequity associated with climate change for many regions we would like to see more consumption as people are progressed out of poverty into a, a more uh, humane existence which means that the burden on those uh, like you and me in, in the global north is even more pronounced
0: but we all need to do it together we all need to take the same step
1: effectively what you've described is something that kind of exists already at a global level so some of the uh, mechanisms as part of the Kyoto agreement are kind of like that um, and we see the uh, emission trading mm. scheme um, like that the, the EU has, for example. So, I mean, there is precincts there. So here's a,
0: here's a proposal for you then, Connor. So, and, and this is a little bit unfair on one industry, but this is just an idea that I've had um, recently. So w- we all agree that air travel is probably one of the biggest uh, polluters, one of the biggest uh, threats to, to climate change. Do you think a way forward would be to issue each person with an individual set of air miles vouchers As in, this is the number of air miles you're allowed to use this year to fly. And then everybody would have to trade in their air miles voucher when they booked a flight. And when your vouchers run out, that's it. You can't take any more flights, but you could trade You could buy someone's air miles if they're not using them do you think something like that would work i mean it's a little bit unfair just on the to target the airline industry but do you think something global like that would actually have a big impact
1: reservation on that point is that ultimately what we don't want to do is just enable people with more money to consume more the absolute amount the absolute total quantity of consumption has to decrease significantly Mm -hmm. So unless that allowance effectively means that many people, sorry, you just can't fly, as opposed to just some people fly more and some people fly less, unless the total, there's no way getting around this, the total absolute quantity of materials consumed has to decrease. So if this was implemented with some kind of cap that was made more let's say restrictive over time then yes that could work but i think it would
0: work wouldn't it if you had a finite amount of vouchers that you could use per year as an individual it
1: depends really on the extent of the cap i mean realistically i mean it's very difficult to given the scale of emission reductions envisioned over the coming decades it's very difficult to see how that is compatible how any really personal air long distance airline travel is, is compatible with the amount of emissions needed in the absence of significant other mechanisms at play for that industry specifically. So whilst I think that could work in the immediate term, in the short term, it would have to have very significant restrictive caps on the allocation of allowances. And that would just mean, you know, the mega rich fly and no one else does.
0: And do you think we we have to work with human nature here as well, don't we? Because of course nobody likes being told what they can and can't do, and how many times they can and can't fly. We've all been brought up with a degree of personal free, a large degree of personal freedom, and that's wonderful. And we kind of want to keep that personal freedom, but how do we balance that with with, with telling people not to live in a certain way?
1: The environment that we're living in doesn't care. It, 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 it'll the impacts will happen you know, whether you uh, uh, agree with restrictions are not but the climate doesn't care really doesn't are are we actually happier with all this consumption but having a fraught life where people have very little time to spend with their families where we use consumption as a kind of a a, almost a salve against the, the constant pressure and pace of modern life could we envision a world where people buy less because they have less money but they also work less
0: well, we've just come through a period, haven't we, when we've all had uh, fewer choices to make because we've been locked in our houses because of COVID. And I think a lot of people, I know a lot for a lot of people, it was just mean awful, but for some people, it represented a simpler way of living. You know, we couldn't go out and spend our money on stuff because the shops weren't open, for example. We couldn't blow, you know, X amount of pounds on a meal out because the restaurants weren't open. We were forced to scale right back on the way we lived and, and who we saw and how we did things. Do you think... That might actually have kickstarted a different way of a different way of living in the future
1: in some cases it might have helped people realize that the consumption does not equal happiness, but at a global level we've seen that you know there's been a couple of percentage point reductions in emissions, but ultimately we're back on track to where we were. the level of emission reduction required implies a step change, something profoundly different. The world has to appear to be. Utterly, utterly changed the type of reductions that are that we envision is necessary.
0: Can you give us some sort of hope for the future, please? Because <laughs> I am always aware when we when we talk about climate change, it's also flipping depressing, isn't it? And it, you yes. know, after oh. I mean, I, you, you must you struggle with these uh, sort of the, the the weight of knowledge that you you carry around in your head. You know, you must uh, feel depressed about the future sometimes. Is is there a little ray of hope somewhere that we might find our way um, out of this? Well.
1: It's what I would say well, I don't like that long pause. I don't like <laughs> that long
0: pause you just gave me.
1: <laughs> what what I would say is that there is still time thing. Yes, we are aiming for one point five because it's likely that anything above that is dramatically significant. But if we don't aim for one point five, mm. aim for one point six. If we don't aim for one point six, aim for one point seven. If we voice sufficient support and willingness to make the kind of changes that are necessary, and we ask, we demand changes in policies that will support these kind of changes. And we do it now, then we have a very good chance of avoiding the worst scale of the impacts. So in all, of that oh, novel, there
0: is so there is there is hope for the is. future. I mean, I'm I'm glad to end on a slightly more hopeful note. But just one more question for Please. you, Connor, to play devil's advocate one more time because it is um, a position I like. Uh, <laughs> adopting as you might have guessed um just to provoke a re- you know a, a, a debate and, and reaction what if you and all the other scientists are wrong what if we're not on the brink of disaster and we're bringing in all these changes and potentially curtailing people's freedoms and you've got it all wrong well, and and the climate will just carry on and we will adapt because we're human beings or an adaptable species you know what if that's the actual correct scenario
1: well i mean i would say within we have the co benefits of consuming less resources becoming more efficient, potentially reducing uh, additional health impacts by transitioning from coal, for example, to cleaner forms of energy. So if we're wrong, then yeah okay, well look we've we've got these additional benefits for free almost. so um I, I would say that you know there is a huge there is quite a lot of uncertainty around uh, particularly as we project out to the future, but often the type of uncertainty is based on the likelihood of the range of impacts not whether or not they're going to happen if we're wrong then you know hey but it doesn't look or at least in, in the fundamental sense we, we don't We have very good reason to believe that the scale and urgency of the problem is a legitimate perspective position to have
0: right Thank you, Dr. Connor Walsh. I think we'll we'll wrap up there on a slightly optimistic note right at the end, which is always nice to leave, leave our listeners feeling there is hope for the future. So thank you very much, Dr. Connor Walsh from NRI at the University of Greenwich. For joining me for another episode of our podcast and we we've talked about all sorts of things we've gone through cop 26 we've talked about paris we've talked about whether climate skeptics should be given airtime we've covered a lot of ground here but uh, to all our listeners thank you for joining us and uh, tune in again next time for our next episode